Hello, everyone. This is Joe Szymanski here with Elections Daily with another candidate interview. With me today is the delegate Lee Carter. He represents the 50th district in Virginia and is running for governor as a Democrat. Thank you, coming, thank you for coming on with me today, delegate. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, delegate. This is the first question I ask everyone who talks with me. What made you decide to run for governor? Well, I got to go back to what made me decide to run for delegate in the first place. So I don't come from a typical background for a politician. I'm not a doctor or a lawyer or a realtor. I'm a Marine Corps veteran and an electronics repairman. And I decided to run for office because I got hurt at work in the summer of 2015. And the Virginia workers' compensation system was just not there for me when I needed it. Uh, and so I started talking to delegates and senators and, and asking them what they were going to do about workers' comp, and nobody had an answer. In fact, one person uh, that worked for the Democratic Party of Virginia said, we don't have any polling data on workers' comp. And I said, I don't care if you have polling data or not. It's broken, and it needs fixed. And so uh, you know, I realized it was a very kind of Mr. Smith goes to Washington sort of thing. I realized that if it was going to get fixed, it was going to have to be by someone who's been on the receiving end of this dysfunction. And, uh, you know, ever since then, I've been in office for four years now, ever since then I've fought for working people first and foremost, for the people who have the least and are the most vulnerable. And uh, we, we come to this moment that we're in right now, where Virginia is in sort of a state of overlapping crises between coronavirus and the housing crisis that we had before it, and the economic crisis that it triggered, and so on and so forth. And I just was not hearing any solutions from the rest of the field that were up to the moment that we're in. Uh, so that's why I decided to run for governor. Uh, you know, I gave basically everyone else as much time as possible to, to start talking about issues in a, a big and serious way, uh, start talking about transforming Virginia into a place where wealth is truly common, um, so that we can stop just calling it a commonwealth. Um, and I, I just was not hearing it. So, uh, you know, I finally took the plunge on January 1st and said, all right, you know, if if, if this commonwealth is going to change into the kind of place where everyone can live and work, and not have to worry about uh, how they're going to put food on the table or how they're going to make the rent or whether they can see a doctor, then it's going to have to be someone who has experienced that struggle. And Unfortunately, that means it's going to have to be me. And I say unfortunately because running for office is not fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing where uh, the, the effects, the things that I've been able to do while I've been in office are what keep me going every day. It's what you know, keeps me able to look myself in the mirror and say, all right, I'm going to do this for another day, and another day, and another day. Uh, so that's how we got here. <laughs> and you mentioned uh, earlier in your answer, you joined the Marine Corps uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, what made you decide to sign up for the Marine Corps, which, uh, you know, that's not something that a lot of people would just, you know, go off on a whim and do. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I come from a military family, uh, and I had grown up hearing my entire life that joining the military is a way to, uh, you know, get your career started and also do something good. Uh, unfortunately, the reality did not live up to it. You know, I, I enlisted right after high school. And uh, the Marine Corps essentially took five years of my life uh, without really, you know, giving me an opportunity to do as much good as, as they said I would be able to do on the brochure. Um, so, uh, you know, I got out after my first term, 
uh, and started working repairing cancer therapy equipment here in Northern Virginia. Okay. Uh, you mentioned, of course, you were part of this major 2017 wave of Democratic candidates in the House of Delegates. Uh, you were barely out of the majority in 2017, got the majority uh, in 2019. Uh, what piece of legislation that you've gotten passed in the House of Delegates so far would you say you're most proud of? The two that I'm most proud of, uh, one was something that we forced the Republicans to do while we were still in the minority, and that is expanding Medicaid. Uh, you know, there were 800,000 Virginians with no health insurance whatsoever. Now that number is about 400,000, which is a tremendous improvement, but it's still 400,000 too many. Uh, and there's upwards of a million Virginians who have health insurance and can't afford to use it. Uh, so, you know, health care has been one of my top priorities uh, while I've been in the General Assembly. And, and, you know, the second piece of legislation that I'm most proud of uh, is actually House Bill 66 from last year. So this was a bill that I introduced, got passed into law, uh, that caps insulin co-pays at $50 a month. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't help absolutely everyone that needs it, but it is a step on the right direction. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm proud of this because this is, you know, this is something that, that I was able to do to help people that are struggling right here, right now, while... Uh, fighting for the, the long-term goal of a truly universal healthcare system where everyone can see a doctor when they period. Okay, and currently the House is starting uh, a special session to go off of the last, the latest winter session. Are there any pieces of legislation that you want to give special mention to that you believe are crucial to pass in this period? Well, right now, uh, we've just passed what's called crossover. So bills uh, are out of their House of Origination. So House bills are in the Senate now and Senate bills are in the House. Um, and so there's not really going to be any surprises. Um, but you know, I think the, the biggest thing uh, that, we're, that we're working on right now is ironing out the details between the House version and the Senate version of a lot of bills. Uh, a lot of my priorities, actually, from the last couple of years uh, that are about to make their way into law. Right. So abolishing the death penalty. Uh, last year, I introduced a bill to do that and it didn't get a hearing this year. Uh, a bill to abolish the death penalty has passed each chamber. Uh, two years ago, I introduced a bill to legalize cannabis in the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, and it died. I mean, I didn't even get all the Democrats in the subcommittee to vote for it at the time. Uh, but now each chamber has passed a uh, cannabis legalization bill. Uh, so we're, we're making tremendous progress on those, uh, which have been priorities since I've, I've been in the house. Um, and, uh, you know, it feels good to not be the only one fighting for those things anymore. Okay. And you met, you, again, this is another thing you mentioned earlier on, but you mentioned that you think you are the person who was here for Virginia's current state to push forward bold progressive reforms. But, and I think a good friend of mine put it to me this way. Virginia likes their boring, pragmatic governors, it seems to be like, if you look at their record of things. Do you think Virginia is ready to elect someone as progressive as you statewide? Well, I think that Virginia has a long record of, uh, yeah, you're right, there are, there are a lot of boring, sort of middle-of-the-road governors. Um, but then we also have about every 40 or 50 years, there's this spike of, of outsider energy and people demanding change. And that's where you get people like Henry Howell. That's where you get you know, the readjuster movement. Um, and, and these are these are moments that have defined Virginia's history. And I think that we're in one of those moments right now. You know, if uh, if none of the above 
were a presidential candidate, none of the above would have won Virginia and 40 some odd other states in 2016. Right. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm giving people an opportunity to vote for something different. I'm the only Democratic candidate in this race who's never taken a dime of corporate money. That means I'm the only one who's never taken from fossil fuel companies. I'm the only one who's never taken from uh, big banks. Uh, I'm the only Democratic candidate who voted against uh, what I see as an incredibly corrupt economic development deal for Amazon. Uh, and so, you know, I've, we've got an opportunity where there is this demand for change from the people of Virginia um, to, to give them a chance to vote for someone who is truly different. I, I think that I'm the candidate for that. Okay, and you and you touched on the your, your the lone vote against the uh, Amazon plan uh, that would be happening in Arlington, I believe. Uh, you know, do you think that's in part of that? Do you think maybe that there's been too much of a focus on economic growth in the Northern Virginia sector of the state only, and then you've kind of seen this ignoring of you know the Virginia Beach, the South Side especially has been struggling in these past couple of years. Is that something that you think needs to be changed? Is that something that you'd try and balance out more of economic growth and development across the state instead of just maybe in northern virginia well i think that the way we've been doing economic development in general is completely wrong um and you know it, it didn't start in the last few years it's something that's been going on for for decades but it definitely um was was turbocharged under uh former governor mcauliffe uh, which is this idea of giving companies tens and hundreds of millions of dollars of cash and tax breaks and essentially, you know, begging billionaires to come in and, and pretty please give us some jobs. Uh, and my vision for economic development is to, to stop giving that money to massive corporations that don't give back and uh, to, to put that money directly in the hands of working Virginians so that they can start their own worker-owned enterprises, right? The, the best way to make sure that people have a solid economic future is not just to give them a job, it's to give them ownership of their workplace. Um, and that's not just in Northern Virginia, it's got to be everywhere. You know, I'm, I'm from a small town in the Hampton Roads area. Um, I'm actually, you know, a little bit uh, from the other side of the state line. I'm from a town called Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Um, but I've seen, you know, growing up, I saw firsthand what happens in these rural areas, which is Walmart comes to town, Family Dollar comes to town. The payday lenders come to town and all the mom and pops just can't compete. And they put boards on the windows and they are done. And we have got to fight back against that. And the way we're going to do it is by directly putting money in the hands of people in these communities, in rural communities, in communities of color, in any community that's been struggling. Putting money directly in people's hands so that they can start their own employee-owned enterprises. So are you, are you talking about a, a universal basic income type thing, uh, say like former presidential candidate Andrew Yang proposed in the 2020 campaign, or, or what's the what's kind of your vision for that? Well, I do support the feds doing that. Um, I don't think that uh, the, the state level is the right place for that because, you know, Virginia is not a currency issuing authority. Um, what I'm talking about is taking the money that we currently spend subsidizing these massive multinational corporations and instead using that money um, as startup capital, grants, zero interest loans for people who want to either start their own employee-owned businesses or uh, convert existing businesses into employee ownership. So what that could look like you know, at the small level is take a diner, for example. Uh, you know, Every two weeks, the staff, after they're done cleaning the tables, 
they bring out the balance sheet and the schedule and they, they all figure out amongst themselves what's going to happen with the money and who's going to work what hours. And on the large scale, what that looks like, you know, the world's largest worker cooperative is called Mondragon. Uh, it was started in a church basement in the 50s in Spain. And uh, today it has over 87,000 employee owners. It operates in 90 some odd different countries and they've never had a layoff. Uh, you know, even through the the 2008 financial meltdown, you know, the, the savings and loan crisis of the 80s, all of these crises that the global economy has been through, they have never had a layoff. And the reason for that is that the CEO has to run for re-election among the employees. And you're not going to be very popular if you fired me. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's about putting ownership and control of the economy into the hands of working people. Okay. Uh, obviously, you know, this is the whole point is this interview is that you're running for governor, but in Virginia, uh, you can run for governor while also still running for your House or Senate seat. Uh, you can do that, of course. Uh, do you still plan on refiling for the 50th district or are you going to are you going all in on this governor's run? Yeah, I'm I'm running for re-election as well as running for governor. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, I'm, I'm all about the outcomes. I'm about delivering as much as I can to the people of Virginia. And if the people of Virginia see fit to make me the governor, obviously I'll be much more effective there. Uh, but if they want to keep me in my house seat, then so be it. That, you know, I'm going to keep fighting for working Virginians from the House of Delegates. Uh, but no matter what, I am in this fight from whichever position the voters sent me to, uh, to make sure that people can afford to put food on the table and keep a roof over their kids' heads. Okay. Now, uh, talking, going on to your kind of your big personality, uh, some, even your own party, have criticized the way you have acted online in certain situations. Uh, what's kind of your comment to those detractors, and do you really, do you really have anything to say about that? Not really. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's a certain level of, of bad faith attack uh, that, that comes with being in politics. You know, if, if you're a public figure, there's always going to be people making things up. There's always going to be people that are, uh, you know, trying to interpret anything that you do in the worst possible light. Um, and, you know, it's it's incredibly human to, to be able to to look at those people that are that are making those bad faith attacks and just say, you know what, I think you're a damn liar. Um, and there's a lot of people uh, out there that really respect the ability to, to, you know, not humor a bad faith attack. Uh, so that's exactly what I'm going to keep doing. Okay. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe if I can just ask, do you think that maybe almost sounds, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to compare you to the man or anything, but does that almost sound like an answer that maybe former president Trump would kind of give when he would be asked a question like that? <laughs> well, he's usually the one making the bad faith attacks. So, um, no, um, you know, although it is, it is, uh, you know, something that, that hit, a, a lot of people, um, don't expect to hear from a politician. And so, uh, you know, it, it was a part of his appeal. Um, but the, the biggest difference between me and him, of course, is that the things I say are based in fact, uh, you know, he, he's making up all sorts of conspiracy theories and, you know, I have receipts for everything that I say. <laughs> uh, so there is there is absolutely no comparison between he and I, except that we both like to use the F word online. <laughs> so uh, getting back to pause here, uh, Virginia is one of the, con you know, it's continuing to grow. The growth in northern Virginia, the growth in the Richmond suburbs. Uh, you're seeing this massive, massive growth 
of people and of population. But with that, that leads to transportation issues. And transportation, I feel like, could be a very key issue for the state in these next decade. Uh, do you have any certain or specific plans uh, for this certain issue? Yeah. Um, the, the biggest priority that I have when it comes to transportation is getting out of this mindset of just paving more lanes uh, to, to try to, to fix our transportation problems. It hasn't worked. It's never worked. We've been trying it for 40 years. And what we've seen in places like Los Angeles, Houston, is the more lanes you build, the more traffic you have to fill. Right? So my priority when it comes to transportation uh, is maintaining our current infrastructure in a state of good repair and making sure that we are building communities that are walkable, that are bikeable, that you can get on a a bus or a train or a streetcar and get where you're going. Um, Ultimately, the the best way to solve traffic is to recognize that the person in a car is not sitting in traffic. The person in a car is the traffic. So you got to get them out of the car and get them to their destination without putting them on a road in the first place. Okay. Uh, what are your three, what are three major policies? What would you say are your top three major policies you would push to see passed in your term as governor if you're elected? So first of all, when we're, when we're looking at, uh, what to expect with the next governor. So first of all, you know, hopefully COVID will be in the rear view mirror and we'll be recovering from COVID rather than, uh, reacting to it. And so when we're recovering for COVID, uh, I want to, first of all, make sure that people's out-of-pocket expenses are covered. I don't care if it's 20 bucks for a test or $200,000 for an ICU stay. I don't think that you should be out-of-pocket anything because you got sick during a pandemic. So I'm going to create an office to reimburse people's out-of-pocket COVID expenses. Second, uh, when we rebuild our economy, I'm going to make sure that it is centered on employee ownership. We're not going to be bribing these massive corporations to come in and gentrify our neighborhoods anymore. We're going to take that money. We're going to put it directly in the hands of working people so that they can start their own employee-owned enterprises. And third, um, when we're talking about criminal justice, so first of all, we're, we're on the road to legalizing cannabis now, but the implementation is still up in the air. So I want to make sure that we use every penny of cannabis tax revenue uh, to fund reparations to black and indigenous Virginians because Virginia's government has been complicit in some of the worst crimes that have been committed uh, in the last 400 years between slavery and Jim Crow and redlining and war on drugs. We have a lot to atone for. Um, but also, you know, we're, we're still incarcerating people at a tremendously high rate. The United States incarcerates more of its people than any other country in history. And the overwhelming majority of those people are locked up by state courts. And so a, a promise that I'm making to the people of Virginia is Uh, If I'm elected governor, a prison population will go down by at least 30%. Even if I have to sign thousands of individual clemency petitions myself, I will make sure that that happens. Those are my top priorities as governor. Okay. And finally, one final question for you here, Delegate. You've just been sworn in. It's your first day as as governor. What's the first thing you do as governor? First thing. Uh, there's so much work to be done on, on so many different issues. Um, but you know, I think the, the first thing that I do as governor uh, is, is start the process of auditing our law enforcement agencies uh, to get rid of white supremacist infiltration. 
right? There has been, you know, it's, it's, it's public knowledge at this point that there has been an active effort by white supremacist groups to infiltrate law enforcement agencies. There was an FBI report on it in, I think, 2015 or 2016, um, said it was one of the greatest security threats facing our country. Um, and so the, the very first thing that I will do on Inauguration Day as governor is start the process of auditing our law enforcement agencies to get rid of any and all white supremacists that have found their way in. Okay. Well, Delegate, I want to thank you for coming on with me this afternoon. I think we had a good chat. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, this is Joe Szymanski with Elections Daily. I want to thank you all for listening, wherever you might be and whatever time it might be. This has been Delegate Lee Carter. He is representing the 50th District in Virginia's House of Delegates, and he is running for governor. Delegate, once again, thank you very much for coming on with me today. Of course, and thank you so much for having me.